0: Welcome to another episode of Jackman Radio. I'm your host, Mike Jackman, joined as always by my twin, Eric. And uh, tonight we are joined by Mr. Aaron Good, the host of the American Exception podcast. Um, He has a book coming out, and he's um, recently appeared in Oliver Stone's new documentary about JFK called Destiny Betrayed. How are you doing tonight, Aaron?
1: I'm good. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it and um you know you've done some great work uh recently i saw a video that you i think you produced it or or did the research or production um with uh, abby martin and uh, oliver stone
1: yeah i i worked with abby to to set that up and i was in touch with oliver too and um it was we were really happy about that and uh roger waters tweeted something about it and it got a lot of views really quickly Got about 190,000, and then Oliver Stone tweeted about it, and then within hours, YouTube slapped a flag on it, and it's basically stopped getting views after that. So of course. I now officially, I mean, I already was, but like, I'm definitely now in the I hate YouTube and Google camp. They are fascist yeah. Uh, entities. They, <laughs> yeah, they life.
0: are. Even though we're streaming on YouTube right now, YouTube, shame on you for doing that. And they uh, they actually took down one of our videos the first time this has ever happened since we've launched our channel we did an interview with mary holland who works with rfk junior over at the um oh yeah children's health defense and we talked about the you know what we had a pretty just regular conversation about it and got her views on it and they took that thing down within hours just the first time any of our videos ever got nuked so it's definitely real for sure
1: yeah i mean that's definitely the the an area where you kind of are it's almost like if there's more reason to be worried about it by virtue of the fact that they're censoring so much stuff, it's, it makes it more seem more problematic, like the whole the state's response. Cause I don't, any, any argument about why they do stuff that hinges upon them really, really, really being concerned about our well-being. I don't find very plausible. So why yeah. Yeah. do they freak out so much about all that? I don't know, but
0: I know why can't people just have a discussion about it? I mean, I, I'm, I, you know, just a regular conversation about it. Even if there's, Nuanced views or diff, you know, differing opinions. I mean, that's what that's what it should be. But, yeah. But, uh, anyways, um. So yeah, we, we wanted to, to kind of talk to you about your your research. Um, I understand you have been the better part of a decade, kind of working towards your doctorate. And did you get that in? Did you kind of do like I a self finished style? That
1: up, yeah. I finished that up in March of 2020. So right when COVID lockdowns happened. And I started around I started in 2010 I believe it was fall 2010 so it did take about ten years but I also went I also had a full-time high school teaching job uh, which I no longer have um interestingly enough but uh that's so that's which is part of why I went to covert action first to set up that podcast and then left very shortly afterwards to set up my own because it seems to be the one area where you can actually be a, a radical and offer radical analysis of history and such. So it took about 10 years and a lot of it, it would have been a lot shorter if I didn't have that full-time teaching job, but the teaching job was really cool. I really enjoyed the students in the classroom and I got to teach US history, East Asian history, which covered China and Japan as a year long course, which was really cool. And uh, a class called uh, Peace Studies of the American Century, which I produced uh, in collaboration with uh, Oliver Stone and Peter Kuznick, uh, they both contributed to it and came to my, be interviewed in different ways. And some of the classes that I recorded because of COVID, I was able to turn into podcast episodes uh, with Oliver and with Peter Kuznick and with Dan Ellsberg and uh, Peter Dell Scott and some other people. So I I kind of got the most out of that opportunity. And uh, now I'm just running the American Exception podcast full time and the book is coming out. And the book has a good bit on the Kennedy assassination, but it's not. Um, I And I added more. I realized when I went back and read the dissertation, I was like, oh, it's, you know, I actually didn't have that much on the Kennedy assassination, but so I, I added a little more, but it's mostly more about the U.S. empire and the lawlessness of it and then the investigations later into the Kennedy assassination in the 70s and how they were examples of uh, <coughs> the way that power is able to cover up state crimes in the U.S. and how that's integral to the regime that we live under.
0: Yeah. So. Did you teach this stuff? Uh, Like, how deep did you get into the Kennedy assassination in a high school setting? I'm really fascinated by that because I've been into this stuff uh, since probably late middle school, early high school, uh, the Kennedy assassination. And I remember kind of discussing it after class with, like, my history teachers. And, um, you know, they all told the official line for the most part. Um, But what was that like in, you know, in 2020, teaching the Kennedy assassination in a public high school?
1: Well, it's not a public. it's a private school. It's oh, a Quaker sorry. school, so they're, they're ostensibly anti-war and such. They're more based Well, they're also a private school, which means that you're drawing from a, a class of people who are beneficiaries of the, the system and, and so on. So there's a, some contradictions and conflicts there. But I did uh, really try to I tried to not do what often happens in high school history classes uh, for US history which is you get really bogged down in the, in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and all this. And then by the time you get to the Cold War, it's like there's no time. The years run out. So I made sure that I get through World War II uh, as early as I as I can so I can talk about post-war history. And I would I, I would spend part of a one class period talking about the Kennedy assassination with a few PowerPoint slides. But really, I mean, if you're economical about it, you don't have to put that much in there for the students to see like, whoa they were obviously lying. I mean, if you just explain the magic bullet uh, theory with like a picture, some PowerPoint slides showing the trajectory and then uh, like a laser, you know, the laser pointer that you can use in class. And you kind of like have one student be like a dummy and say like, okay, sixth floor hits him in the back here. Could it possibly have exited out of his neck? No. The the kids, it doesn't matter if they're like 14 or 15 or they get Fs in physics. No, everybody, every person is capable of seeing that that's impossible. And so, you know, then we would move on. But I would talk about it every once in a while because it's like such a fascinating issue. But when I taught the um, peace studies class, it started with post-World War II. And so we could actually spend a good bit of time. We watched JFK in that class, the Oliver film. And uh that one you have time for a deeper dive on those issues, probably for some students it's like this is deeper than I wanted to go, but you know they uh you're they i, I try to not i could have spent more time on it than i did, but i I did get, go more in depth into it i mean j f k alone the film is like they pack a ton of information in that. it's kind of amazing what Oliver was able to do with that so um you know i and I talk about the r f k assassination and the students you know just explaining like that he was planning to reinvestigate his brother's assassination before he gets assassinated. Um, that alone is, you know, pretty uh, astounding. And then the whole campaign itself is, it's like, we tell this, you tell the story and it's kind of inspiring because of everything RFK was trying to do in 1968 and it seems so hopeful. And then he gets killed and it's like, God, its it really is one of the most depressing episodes uh, in, in U.S. history. It's kind of the end. In some ways, it's like, marks a a big milestone towards like the functional end of any sort of democracy in the u.s i generally put the the real uh fundamental victory of the deep state in in u.s political history as the election of ronald reagan i think that that represented something uh from which there was no going back uh without major structural global changes it
0: paved the way for the game show host you know
1: (laughs) yeah i mean yeah well Reagan had a poster that actually said one of his campaign posters was let's make America great again. So
2: yeah. Yeah. Trump cribbed that directly from him. He was like, Reagan said, let's make America great. I should, let's make America great again. Okay. We added the again, Aaron, and it was amazing. Um, Yeah. So I mean, deep state, it's funny how bastardized that term has become because a lot of the MAGA people had never heard it before, had no concept of it. And it got thrown out, you know, with Trump's campaign and that he is fighting the deep state. But, you know, you mentioned, I think before we were rolling our Peter Dale Scott and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, he's kind of the godfather of that term of kind of putting it out there into the public consciousness and really showing and shining a light on what the deep state is. So if you had to tell somebody, who's kind of new to this stuff or they don't really know, they just have a bastardized version, MAGA version of deep state to you, Aaron, what is the deep state?
1: Well, it's tricky to define. The shortest answer is that it is uh, all of those institutions that collectively allow for top-down governance in a nominally democratic polity. So this just means like, what are the, what are all these institutions that allow for us a minority wealthy elites to run the U.S. Uh, according to its own whims rather than by any sort of democratic democratic processes. So it can sort of mean, in the broader sense, it can be kind of an, uh, synonymous with uh, the idea of the establishment or the established order, right? But then there's other times where you might say deep state and you're really referring to those uh, covert parts of the government uh and other power structures in the u.s that are able to uh intervene to determine political outcomes okay so it's like there's other there's multiple ways you can use it and because it is not formally organized in a way that's transparent and above board i i think that it's not incumbent upon us to like be super precise about it i mean the awareness that we are not governed by any sort of democratic system, as evidenced by the fact that the policies don't really change no matter who gets elected, um, that should be pretty obvious. Additionally, there's the the fact that the title of my dissertation took its name from, which is that the U.S. operates uh, with a sort of institutionalized abrogation of the rule of law, okay? There's like a negation of the rule of law for national security actors And this runs counter to any understanding of, like, democratic political theory or liberal political theory. I mean, this is the rule of law in America has been overridden by the dictates of running an empire. And the way that this was done initially after World War II is the creation of covert intelligence agencies. So you could have the state carrying out illegal policies that you could plausibly deny. And so by creating all of this secrecy and this ability to act without any sort of legal oversight, you really create the, this area for deep political power to take, uh, to take root. Now, Peter Dale Scott, is so he was written up in the New York Times and the other places uh, for bring, popularizing this term in the West. It comes from the East in Turkey, really. It comes out of Turkey and these revelations about the Turkish state. And how the democracy was more of a facade in Turkey, and that really there are these clandestine networks of uh, criminal organizations and paramilitary groups, and the security services that were manipulating politics and staging coups and false flag terror and so on. And it all got exposed spectacularly in Turkey in the late '90s, and that became, became referred to as "derin devlet," which is a Turkish term meaning "deep state," and so. And so in the mid-2000s, this is written about by a guy named Ola Tanander, who is at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, the same place that founded peace studies with Johan Galtung. And uh, he was writing about the deep state of the West and about NATO and Gladio and how there's really a a whole different security architecture that trumps democracy in NATO. And then Peter took that term and and started to, he met Ola Tanander at a conference and then he started thinking about it in the U.S. case. In Peter's case, though, I think he actually could get the most credit for bringing the term to the U.S. Uh, and really to the Western world in general because his work predates the, even the acknowledgement of a Turkish deep state. He wrote this book called Deep Politics. And what he described as the deep political system is an, very close to the deep state. So it's I don't know if the Turkish people had read his work and that came out of it or why the word deep was was adopted. But really, the book Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, which he published in like 1990, maybe 1991 originally or 1993, 1992, somewhere around there. Um, this explained what he, he wasn't going as far as to say it was uh, the state. He was trying to deal with the fact that it's that you can't really pin down this source of power. And some of it seems to be nestled in the state. And then some parts of it seem out to be above the state, like the overworld of corporate wealth and then the underworld of organized crime, neither of which are formally integrated into the state, but exert a lot of power. So he was talking about a deep political system and then eventually he starts to write about a deep state. I make the argument that America always had a deep political system with governance occurring inside and outside of the normally understood you know, democratic institutions. Um, but that it with the creation of the national security state after world war ii you have uh a a a national securitized government pursuing empire lawlessly and that this gives deep political forces uh the ability to become more entrenched and more institutionalized and essentially part of the the state such that we can describe a tripartite state with a Democratic state of like Congress and the president and state and local governments, yada, yada. The national security state, which is the the formal military and security bureaucracies. And then a kind of deep state institutionalized power that is over both the the public state, you know, the Democratic state and the national security state that uh, kind of has the ability to sort of trump the policies of both of them. And so this is a, a top down kind of authoritarian uh, aspect of the state that now dominates uh, American uh, American politics and society, and that we have to confront this uh, if we want to bring democracy back in any meaningful sense in the United States.
0: Yes, absolutely, and and I think Trump even kind of got a taste of it when he was in there. You know, of course he was uh, he was the the main don, but you know. I remember one comment he made where he was like, look, the military industrial complex is a very real thing, Aaron. Okay, these people love war and they get it. And um, it's just crazy hearing him use the phrase deep state um, or military industrial complex. I think the last president to use that was Eisenhower in his farewell address. And um, yeah, you know, with Trump, obviously he's 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 part of the the club and he's a he's an American oligarch. But he would occasionally say things, you know, stuff, stuff would come out of his mouth. It's like, did he really just say that? Like when he talked about the Kennedy assassination and, um, of course, he was tweeting about it, about the files coming out and him wanting the files to come out. Do you think he got a visit from Pompeo? What do you think happened
1: there? Yeah, I'm sure somebody in the maybe his national security advisor, maybe his briefer from the CIA, maybe Pompeo himself. Somebody told him, no, you can't do this. Uh, which is unfortunate i don 't really know what his views of the, the j f k would be because his i don 't know how he would fit it into any sort of political ideology that you can attribute to trump i don 't I, I see him as kind of an opportunist and not somebody oh, yeah. who thinks deeply about history and politics but no. i mean maybe he does think more think more about it than you would guess i just see yeah. i don 't i just wonder what he was really thinking i think he kind of just thought like oh yeah i won't be like those other guys i'll release the papers and then somebody said you cannot do this yeah oh yep. that's the deep i guess state. i cannot
0: <laughs> that's the deep state showing its hand man that's the hidden hand right there you know i mean going all the way to the executive branch and being able to have the power to, to not have the rest of the documents come out
1: you know now we're coming up on almost 60 years you know, biden since- too you know but he's not biden's an irish catholic even Right.
0: Yeah, that's that's what a lot of folks were hoping to appeal to, you know, because obviously JFK, Irish Catholic. Um, but one good thing that's happened the last couple of weeks, uh, former Secret Service agent, Mr. Abraham Bolden, was uh, pardoned by President Biden. And uh, this is his book, Echo, the Echo from Dealey Plaza. And, uh, you know, Mr. Bolden is now, I believe, 86, 87 years old.
1: No, I think, I think he's in his 90s, actually. You, you, I might be wrong about that, but I thought he was in his 90s even. He was born in 35, so that would make him okay, 87. You might,
0: I, th- okay. I th- think he's 87 this year. Okay. I, could be, I could be
1: wrong. but um, If that's the right birthday, then, yeah, okay. I <laughs> yeah,
0: um, we had him on our podcast, jeez, probably back in 2015 or 2016.
2: Hmm. Jan- January of 1935, that's what it says. Yeah. Oh, so he's 87, I think.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really a math guy, but...
2: <laughs> um,
1: yeah. Have you ever had a chance to talk to Aaron or
0: what do, you, what, no, do make, online, what do you make of
1: the Online, I've exchanged a few like, you know, short ex- messages with him, but I'm, I'm really happy that he was pardoned. I don't know if they're going to try to do anything else like compensate him financially. Um, it, it was, he got thrown in jail after he tried to blow the whistle on what had happened with Chicago because they really did not want that. It, his is another case where if you look at it, you look at the Chicago plot and what they did to him. It's it obviously it points up unmistakably to a state a plot backed by elements of the state to get rid of the president. It's just the coincidences are impossible with Dealey Plaza and throwing him in jail so you can't even talk about it, and then letting those Cubans in Chicago go after they detained them for questioning, but they have no record of who they were and what they said. I mean, it's just there's no innocent explanation for that or for that being with help from the Warren commission. It's just another one of those things about the Kennedy assassination. Like whenever I haven't looked at it in a while and then go back and, and study it or hear somebody speak about it. It just uh, strikes me again, like how many damning pieces of evidence there are that point unmistakably to uh, the state hand in, in that, and that whole event as a, as a coup d'etat of sorts.
0: Yeah, because they had another former uh, or ex marine ready to go who had three names in Chicago, right?
1: Yeah, Thomas Valley, Valley ba- ba- or valet i I'm not even sure how you pronounce it, but yeah, and he had uh, he was a bircher in that in in this case, so he was not exactly the same as uh, as Oswald, who's a fair play for Cuba guy. And the Florida guy that they had set up potentially was also a fair play for Cuba guy. Wow. Ballet was different, but uh, he was a he was a bircher, um, but. Ex marine and so on.
0: I think a lot of the more recent evidence, and, and I think Destiny Betrayed touches on this, um, which I, I don't remember exactly. But um, Oswald was probably part of some kind of false defector program. I mean, there's just too many, as well as the other the other guy uh, Valley. There, um,
1: you know. I don't think Valley had defected though.
0: Oh, he he wasn't part of that. No. I don't he, believe he
1: was a defector, but he was at the military. Was he, he was at a CIA base that also had U two flights, but it wasn't that sugi. It was a different base in Japan. And yeah, and he, so he he may have he probably had something, some sort of CIA connection. May have had some sort of MK Ultra thing because he was he had mental problems. Yeah, uh, as I understand it, or he was that that was he, he seemed crazy, and he had a bunch of guns on him that. For whatever reason too that contributed to his being arrested but he wasn't really arrested until the plot was exposed that was another funny thing about it until after the cubans were arrested they pick up that guy
0: yeah and didn't he end up in a, a mental institution or
1: i don't know did that he, he go to prison or i don't know that he did i don't think i don't think that he did for that i may have let him out for that i'm not totally sure but i do know that uh if memory serves uh, Abraham Bolden was at the same prison as Richard Case Miguel, the guy that walked into a bank uh, about a week before the president was assassinated and shot into the roof and said, I, I don't want to be in Dallas. I want to be in jail uh, in, when the president goes to Dallas. And so they arrested him. And he had like on him, on his person or in his car, he had uh, like a ID card of Oswald with Oswald only with the alias like Hadell. Uh, and he had fair play for Cuba literature and uh, and so on. So that's it. It's it's funny that he ended up and he was in jail for a couple of years, I guess. And he was there at the same place in the same location where they put Abraham Bolden. So this is something they can do. they can send people to jail and say they're crazy. They did that to somebody in the MLK case as well. Some woman was sent to jail for or a mental institution for for years because of that.
0: Yeah, because sometimes when I'm talking to people about this, they're like, "Oh, somebody would have would have talked. Somebody would have." It's like, well, look what happened to Abraham Bolden. He tried to do the right thing, and they set him up for it. So they got him on some kind of false bribery charge, and um, yeah, they locked him up. And then I believe he went. He they put him in a mental institution and put him on awful. Uh, I don't know if it was shock therapy or what kind of treatment, but they really did a number on him and totally ruined his life and his career. So, um, yeah, it's it, <laughs> there were people that talked. Now, was Case Nagel? Was he Richard Case Nagel? Did he was he a government? Was he part of some government entity, or was he just like a, a underworld type figure or like what was Richard
1: Richard Case Niguel is written about in uh Dick Russell's book The Man Who Knew Too Much and he was an ex-marine intelligence operative of some sort and he seems to have been tasked with something similar to Oswald which was infiltrating these anti-Cuban exile groups and also the fair play for Cuba committee and he claims that he had um information even recorded information about Sergei, I think it was Sergio Aracacha smith and Oswald at the same place, and they're talking about the Kennedy assassination. So he had this tape that he said was, like, um, going to be his, like, insurance policy was having these audio recordings. And he had this in, like, a purple trunk in storage somewhere. He gets called by the AARB the A-A-R-R-B to testify, you know, after Oliver's movie in the 90s. And then like the day that the, ma- that, that the letter arrives, he is found dead of a heart attack. Uh, wow. And the trunk that he had described, this purple trunk that had all of this um, evidence and information in it was never found. Uh, so it's a fascinating story and uh, it's in- pretty impossible to explain away how he, why he went into that bank and shot it up just to get arrested. And then he had the Oswald, ID card in his possession along with fair play for Cuba literature so it's like he he said that Oswald was that he was trying to warn Oswald about what they were doing with him and that Oswald didn't act on it but it's really fascinating uh story and uh it's too bad that they you know that he died right before he could testify about it but to me that suggests that like there are people there are people within the the, the government who are aware of where the vulnerabilities are for this particular case, and so there's some kind of apparatus that is looking at that. Um, of course, we're not privy to that, but it, I'm guessing it's something along the lines of like whatever apparatus they used to get rid of Frank Olson, you know, or when E. Howard Hunt in the 1970s. Had told the New York Times that there was a unit in the CIA that was there uh, for killing even CIA employees and CIA assets if need be. So. Uh, that kind of thing exists, and even Cyhurst said the same thing when he talked about Frank Olson. So, this is a, a part of what they do, and we're not privy to the uh, to the inner workings of this. But that's one thing that the government does, based on you know multiple sources, even state stores, state sources like P. Howard Hunt. Yeah, they
0: got all kinds of bag men in their employ, and um, you, you mentioned MLK uh, or MLK MK Ultra earlier, and it's it's interesting uh MK Ultra figure ends up in the jail uh examining Jack Ruby. That was um I think it was uh jo- Dr. Jolly West. Yep. Who's a who's a he's a horrific figure in, in the, the history of uh of government. And um
1: right after he sees Ruby, Ruby he rules that Ruby is uh clinically insane because he's had a psychotic break. Yeah maybe, re- maybe because of all the ass that I just gave him, but uh whatever <laughs> <It> reminds, <reason. laughs> reminds me of that
0: scene from Batman Begins. When uh, Scarecrow goes in to examine uh, the, the the crime figure, and then he, he yeah basically gases him. And, uh, he
1: loot yeah, Nolan. could have been inspired by that. I don't know the those Batman movies are weird. I I think that Nolan is kind of a fascist himself or something <laughs> politically. But uh, uh, it's 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 strange to look at them in that way, um, especially the third one. The third one I thought was kind of like a peon to to fascism, it was like. You know, you the, the the what is bat Batman's almost like a metaphor for the deep state or something in that one. It's like the, yeah. the authorities, the authorities can't do it. You need the secret powers to go out there. <laughs> so that's with a strange set. But yeah, there's and even um like Star Trek, some like Deep Space Nine even has a lot of weird spy stuff in it too. So there's all kinds of pop culture influences and references to MK Ultra and different assassinations and so on. Um yes. that we can find
2: seeps into all of that, all of that stuff. And yeah, Sean Stone did a great documentary that RT aired all about intelligence in Hollywood and the Pentagon and the Defense Department and the intelligence agency. So that, that's really interesting. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on the phone call that Oswald made. Uh, his one call was, wasn't it to an army intelligence guy in the Carolinas?
1: Yeah, somebody named, I think the name was John Hurt. And they, he was a military intelligence officer around, around Fort Bragg, uh, which is today, that's the headquarters of kind of special operations and all that. So, and it may have, there may have been something similar. I I think it was, it was somewhere in North Carolina, and I think it was Fort Bragg. And uh, they didn't place the call. They, he tried to make the call and they pretended like they were making it, but they didn't. And then they instructed the operators to throw the, the number away, but somebody dug it out of the trash, and that's how we—that's the only way we even know who it was. But he was apparently trying to call somebody who he thought was his handler or or could help him, uh, and nobody nobody answered. So it's just another one of those things, like the false defector angle or what he was doing in New Orleans, that points to Oswald as a um, low-level uh, intelligence, you know, agent and agent provocateur uh, for working for the government.
0: There's a uh, documentary that's gonna be coming out about um, you know, Ruth and Michael Payne uh, and, and their housing of Oswald and kind of being around him. And I think Ruth helping him secure the job at the depository. Um, what are your thoughts on on uh, Ruth Payne?
1: She's deeply creepy. I mean, I think that comes across in those interviews. She's, um, I'm out here on the East Coast and was, you know, worked at a, at a Quaker school and a lot of Quakers are very nice and such. You do have an element of like waspy old money that you can run into, and a kind of weird, a, a strangeness with some of these some some people that you can encounter in these circles. Because she taught at Swarthmore and was like a Unitarian or Quaker kind of, apparently a, a leftyish type of person, but not really. So, because her husband was like a worked for Bell Helicopter and he did work. Uh, so, uh, apparently surveilling radical groups at different times because of this Unitarian thing. So you could meet people who were like anti-war and uh, you know, his stepfather, Michael Payne's stepfather invented the bell helicopter, which was one of the biggest moneymakers during the Vietnam war. Uh, Ruth Payne's sister worked for the CIA. Ruth Payne's mother Anne Bancroft or was good, was very, was best friends with Ann Bancroft who was Alan Dulles's mistress, um, which is another impossible coincidence. Um, so she's a very suspicious character who happened to come through whenever they needed evidence that that was missing for the Warren Commission, like things pertaining to Mexico City. She actually met Oswald at a party thrown by Standard Oil executives. Oh,
2: so really?
1: you've got this guy, George DeMoren who gets a call from the CIA chief in Dallas and says, can you go and befriend this guy, Lee Harvey Oswald? He's an ex Marine and he'd been to Russia you're from Russia, so maybe you guys can be friends. Nudge, nudge. So, DeMorne Schilt defends this guy. He's a guy who's connected to oil and uh, intelligence in the past. So he goes and befriends Oswald. And then later there's this party that that he takes Oswald to, thrown by Standard Oil people. And Ruth Payne just happens to be there. And then he introduces Oswald to Ruth Payne. And then he leaves the country Gets $200,000 to go do something in Haiti of, you know, unknown, the details of that are unknown, and then hands them off to the pains. So it, it seems pretty clearly that she, that that was orchestrated by higher-ups. Um, Alan Dulles in particular has connections to Damoren Schilt since DeMoren Schilt was about 10 years old. Um, he would have met him when uh, Alan Dulles was working with his father, Dimitri de Schilt, who was a noble oil Executive, and they were in the back around 1920 after the Russian Revolution. There were still hopes that they could continue operating. Standard Oil could uh, get into that Baku, you know, Caspian Sea oil game, uh, and so Dulles, Alan Dulles, as a um, person working for the State Department, was coordinating some uh, deal making with Noble Oil between Noble Oil and Standard Oil, uh, and. Eventually that doesn't happen because of, you know, the Bolsheviks nationalizing everything, but that's his connection to Damorenschild. It goes back all the way to 1920. Um, and then in 1941, Dulles and De Damorenschild were both involved in this thing called the Scheherazade incident, which was a, a tanker. Scheherazade was the name of a tanker, and it was um, essentially impounded by authorities for taking oil it was a t- Texaco and Humble Oil were selling, m- taking oil through French Morocco into t- to Vichy, France. So they were basically selling oil to Nazis and it was a big scandal. And so Dulles was, John Foster Dulles was potentially facing legal trouble for that, as was de Morin Schilt, who kind of disappears for a while. He gets deported from Mexico during this time because of this affair. And he may have been charged with something, but then he kind of disappears. People speculate Greg Polgrain speculates that he may have been sent to Indonesia where he discovered a big oil well in West Papua. It's not really proven, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence for that. So there's connections to de going all the way back. And uh, in his book that he wrote, DeMoren Before He Died, he spoke about Alan Dulles at the Warren Commission and how he was this scary presence who was frightening him uh, at the time. And DeMoren later said himself that like, he feels really bad about what happened to Oswald, and Oswald was a patsy, um, but he couldn't do anything to help him because the whole thing is very strange. Why are these people like Ruth Forbes Payne, who's, you know, Forbes is like the famous Forbes family, opium trafficking fortune uh, initially from from around where you guys live, right? New England somewhere. Uh, Boston, I think, more specifically, yeah, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, like and, John,
1: uh, John, and so, John Forbes Carey. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So blue, blue bloods. And then Demor showed himself as this like, you know, uh, tr- Russian white Russian transplant, basically oil aristocrat. Uh, no reason for him to be hanging out with a 22 year old loser Marine like Oswald, except for the CIA chief of Dallas uh, called him and said, Hey, hang out with this guy. So everything about Oswald is, uh, is extremely suspicious and impossible to make any sense of, of his, comings and goings unless you think there's an intelligence angle and then it all makes sense then the the pain angle makes sense the new orleans angle makes sense the demoralist angle makes sense mexico city thing sort of makes sense yeah the dallas cia chief was jay walton moore and he's the person who called up george demoralist and said hey this guy named lee harvey oswald you should befriend him
2: right and then of course you have the mayor of dallas and his brother being revealed that he was cia
1: yeah, the, the brother was known to be CIA, um, Cabell, Charles Cabell, I believe was the, was the CIA person who was fired along with Dulles and Bissell after the Bay of Pigs. And I think the Dallas mayor was Earl Cabell. Earl, yeah. And so this was always considered suspicious by researchers. And then just a couple of years ago, one yeah. of the, the document releases confirms that he was, in fact, the mayor of Dallas was, in fact, a CIA asset, but everybody kind of knew that anyway. But it's like just more proof. Uh, of yeah, further
2: evidence of it, like putting, you know, credence to that. Um, so if you had to just say to somebody who, who doesn't know too much about this case, what is really the most glaring instance of a cover up and that the, the official story is complete horseshit?
1: Well, they cover in JFK. Through the Looking Class and JFK Destiny Betrayed, they really get into the heart of the Warren Commission's evidence about the case. And just the evidence by itself is overwhelming that it didn't happen the way that they said. In particular, the magic bullet trajectory is impossible on its face, that a bullet fired from the sixth floor could enter into the president's back and exit at a higher point, a much higher point through the neck. Okay, it's fired at a pretty sharp downward angle from the sixth floor. It would have exited if it was going to exit at a lower point than it entered, obviously. Instead, they have it go through a higher point. Um, and then it goes through Connolly, hits him in the back, supposedly, exits out of his chest, goes through his wrist, and then exits out of his wrist, and then goes through his thigh, and then flops out in perfect condition. Anybody, it, it's impo- the physics of the angles of the shots are impossible. But on top of that no bullet could do like it shatters Connolly's ribs and a bone in his wrist which is a thick thing there's it's impossible they they tested this on just the wrist cadaver cadavers of uh, the wrists of different cadavers and no bullet didn't get seriously deformed when they when they tested it so that that part alone is is impossible um additionally the there's so much evidence of a shot from the front the there's the back into the left motion there's the people behind Kennedy that were reporting getting hit by brain and skull so hard that they thought they'd been shot themselves. Uh, there's the head, the, the wound, the, the brain and skull being blown onto the trunk of the car, which Jackie is going to get, you know, at the end. There's that Harper fragment that's missing, uh, which fits seems to fit only perfectly in the back of Kennedy's skull. Uh, there's the pictures of the brain that you know, the fact that the brain went missing, but then there's all these other problems with the, the photographs of the brain, including the fact that the photographer that they, that whose name is on them says, I did not take these. I didn't use that film. I never took them. So there's just so much evidence about that asp- those aspects of it. Additionally, there's, they, they explain this in the documentary that the evidence, th- there was a lot of evidence that should have been brought out showing that Oswald couldn't have been on the sixth floor. You know, like those multiple witnesses, those women who were on the like fourth floor or fifth floor. And they they go through that with some graphics and so on in the film showing that really Oswald couldn't have been on the sixth floor and made it down to the second floor, the way the Warren Commission said. Um, So there's all of those issues. And then the Ruby thing is absurd. This guy who was a is a so mob connected, not just mob connected, but he's connected to the Dallas because he's not like a mafiosi. He's a person connected to organized crime, but he's closer to like the Teamsters and to the Dallas police and so on. So he has a, it's not this Cosa Nostra thing like the Sopranos. It's like this guy is connected to drug drug trafficking, big drug trafficking rings, as well as um, the, you know, he has a sex club, basically. He's also very close to the Dallas police. So probably a lot of what payoffs and things go through there and sexual you know, blackmail and all this other corruption. He was also involved in this murder that that was connected to the takeover of the wire service, like back in the 30s or 40s or something like that. So he's connect, got connected to this big Chicago gang. So he was off and he went to Cuba to visit people like Louis McWillie, who was like a direct subordinate of Santo Traficante. Um, all these connections to Cuban gun running before, you know, leading up to the Bay of Pigs and even before that. So there's just, the idea that he's just this like concerned citizen is ridiculous. And he said it himself. He said, he, he said that people in a powerful position, uh, put me in this position and the world, they'll never let the facts come above board about why I had to do what I did. And then he dies before he can get his, his, his second trial. Cause they, they granted him a new trial. So every single aspect of the case, uh, Cannot is extremely suspicious. Ruby Oswald, Oswald's actions in the years leading up to this, Oswald's defection to the Soviet Union, um, the 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 bullets, the 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 medical evidence, everything is uh, is has all the hallmarks of something of a state crime that was just shoehorned into this phony cover story that has been defended with the full power of the state and media ever since. even though it, it's kind of self-refuting in various ways
0: yeah it's almost cartoonish at this point um but i, I think kind of going back i don't know if you said this off air but um basically you know those assassinations in the 60s you know ending with um um you know mlk and uh bobby in 68 um that really was kind of the end of uh, any kind of uh, opportunity to move our country in a, in a different direction and away from a warfare state and now you have just massive surveillance and everything that Snowden exposed and um it just seems so behemoth now and that a lot of it does rely on the fiction of the warren commission or um you know what the media just regurgitates to the people that i don't know that there's any i don't really know what we do about it i mean other than you know obviously trying to educate ourselves and each other and you know doing podcasts you know teaching but It just seems like it's so far gone now that you can't even, you wouldn't even be able to get a figure like Bobby Kennedy or someone running for high office that, you know, that wasn't compromised or, you know, that could actually do something about this stuff. So what do you think can be done at this point to, you know, is it so ingrained in our society and our consciousness and all of our institutions that it's just like a, an octopus tentacles everywhere that can't be undone?
1: Well, they, with the assassination of Kennedy, you, it it had enormous ramifications for the history of the world. And because it leads to the Vietnam war for one that kills millions of people. And it also wrecks the U S financial system predictably. I mean, that was one of the things that Kennedy was really, that was one of the arguments that he used about not sending in ground troops before he was asked by Max Taylor and others can we should send in ground troops. And he said that will wreck the balance, our balance of payments position. We've been losing gold for years we need to like make some changes so that that alone is more evidence and not that many people have written about that i have a chat i have something on that in american exception peter del scott wrote a 1971 essay on it it's really brilliant we've been talking about that on this n- the newest episode of the podcast coming up and we're going to continue to talk about it more but like not that many people have written about this this aspect of it but kennedy was really trying to change the u.s balance of payments position and in the months before the assassination, they were the first months in years that the U.S. Treasury did not lose gold. OK, because that was the, the way it was set up after World War ii that the dollar was going to be the global reserve currency valued at one thirty fifth an ounce of gold. But because of the way that the U.S. tried to set up the economy, the economies, and in the international trade between Europe and East Asia, they really couldn't help but lose some gold all the time, especially as U.S companies went and and also invested overseas to buy up whatever assets they could buy that that might be profitable. That also led to more U.S. to a gold drain. And so these were things Kennedy was trying to rein in, and that was part of the reason he was pursuing peace. But it was kind of dovetailing financial stability with the cause of peace. And so when he dies, uh, Jackie and Robert send uh, somebody over to Russia to say, uh, we know you guys didn't kill Jack. It was a domestic right-wing plot. Uh, LBJ is not going to be a partner for peace. The quest for peace is going to have to wait until Bobby can get into the White House. Okay, so they knew what JFK was trying to do, and that LBJ was not going to do the same thing. There's no way they would have started the Vietnam War, and they had, they had in fact, made orders to withdraw from Vietnam, they made the decision, uh, and it's, it's written. It's, there's records of this. Um, the, the only thing you can really argue now is that maybe Kennedy would have reversed it that decision. But that was the policy when he was killed. Johnson does reverse it. Okay. So this leads to the, eventually the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system. And that should have weakened the U.S. except that it over, because of a number of factors, including ginned up oil crises, uh, and then later the Volcker shock to interest rates, the U.S. financially, economically ends up in a more dominant position in spite of Vietnam, because the they're now replaced with a new financial system, with the U.S. dollar as the main component of it, except that it's no longer backed by gold, which means essentially the U.S. and corporate America, the U.S. banks and so on, can they have this un, unprecedented in human history, this Rumpelstiltskin power to run deficits as big as they want. That's why Reagan runs these huge deficits, but the, America, the U.S. is only more dominant, and it's from a, a, a debtor position, which is not typically the way it's supposed to work, but they're in debt with a currency that they have a monopoly on producing. So this is a huge source of American power and the U S and for the American elites, the corporate elite, they have ungodly power once this new system gets totally established. And it's not really until Reagan, the seventies are kind of tumultuous with a lot of economic ups and downs because they're sorting this out. But the way that it all finally comes together is with Reagan over this new consolidated system, and then Reagan, then they're able to allow oil prices to go way down, and allow interest rates to go way down, which has something of a boom in the economy. And then Reagan can be like, "Look at my policies are working, because look at the economy is, has rebounded." But really, it had to do with the amount of power America wielded through its structural dominance of the international economy. So, what can what is possible to what can be done about this sort of hyperpower that? did stem pretty directly from the Kennedy assassination. Additionally, it caused a huge spike in the price of gold, and another thing that Kennedy was trying to do was repair relations with Indonesia, but that was also against Alan Dulles's plan. So in 1965, you have this massive uh, slaughter in Indonesia that, that, is, that the CIA or is behind along with this crazy pretext of a of a coup that goes wrong that they use to justify slaughtering the uh two maybe two million half a million two million three million uh indonesian communists and the end result is that you have a, a puppet suharto installed in indonesia and you also have big oil that comes online in west papua and also the world's biggest gold mine is in, is in indonesia it's owned by a rockefeller company and a 90%-10% split with the Indonesian military, uh, you know, starting when they start mining that, which I think was in the 70s. The Freeport has probably stolen huge amounts of gold. They don't even really know um, how much. It's the biggest gold mine in world history. And this comes online, you know, in the 70s, and it's still being mined today. And in conjunction with a massive increase in the value of gold because of the end of the Bretton Woods system. So it really is all part of this crime of the century, getting rid of Kennedy and scrapping the Bretton Woods system and replacing it with this Rumpelstiltskin dollar system. What? Meanwhile, you control the, the biggest source of gold in the world, the, uh, the, the sort of production of, of which, you know, the gold that's produced, we don't even know where it is. So it's this, the, the elites of the U.S., the, the pinnacle of the corporate elites in the U.S., have money and power beyond anything in U.S. in world history. I don't even know that we're aware of like who actually controls some of these fortunes. I tend to think that within these holding companies and foundations and so on, uh, that they're probably some of these old money entities like the Rockefellers and, you know, Morgans and so on, that they may have control of money and fortunes uh, that dwarf what we think of as being uh, the, the world's richest people like Bezos and so on. These guys seem like they're sort of yeah, they're rotating f- they're front cast. Men. I mean, yeah. and, and Bill Gates, it just, I just, when did, yeah. the, when did standard oil and, and and such, considering what, just considering how much money Freeport's made with and how much gold they probably stolen. like, you know, when did they stop being su- the, the richest people in the world? I, I kind of doubt it. Now, what do we do about it? It, the politics in the U.S. is insane. It's they have the, the Democrats have control of they they just won an election, to, and control the con they control the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and they've done nothing. The only things that they've done are this crazy proxy war with Russia, and now Roe is Roe versus Wade is getting overturned. It's the there is no there, there are two right wing parties in the United States that are totally controlled by corporations that are in the tank for the 0.1% to the detriment of the 99% of the people in the United States. But what is, what is possibly changing is the international situation that a lot of the way that they've been able to avoid democratic accountability is by distorting the economy due to the U S global position in, uh, in the world economy. And with this and the dollar as this magic, uh, this magic power that can overcome all sorts of bad governance because you can just produce as many dollars as you want. It should make people realize that like Mike, we could have easily had, we could have run deficits as big as we wanted. And we did mostly on the military side, but we could have had u- universal health we could have had free college education. We had this power to print as much money as we want for social right. goods. And we only used it for like <laughs> bailouts and missiles. I mean, yeah. we, people should be furious. Our priorities we've are totally other
0: yeah, our priorities are completely uh, out of whack. It's totally. Uh, skew. It's, it's come to bear now in 2022, man. Right. Yeah, if they, our infrastructure, people's mental health. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's pretty – it's kind of dark right now. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> it is. But yeah. I think they've shot themselves in the foot with this Russia business because they may be bringing about this alternative to the dollar system that that And that dollar system is the heart of their power. It's as much as yeah. anything, even more than the military aspect of it, because you can't use much of the military power because you'll just blow up the world. And so we're finding out, like, what really is the source of U.S. power? And I think it's this stranglehold over the economic institutions of the world. But they may be forcing the creation of an alternative to that between Russia and China and other countries because of their stupidity. I mean, I, I think that there's a real decline in the thinking of the people running things and the, the shrewdness of them, not even in a Machiavellian sense are they so, are they so competent anymore based on what right. I can tell. So I'm not, so, I don't know how it's gonna play out, but things are changing. So, so Aaron, I know it can be hard
2: to pin down and we've heard the term wilderness of mirrors, um, but on your end, from your research and what you've dug into, where, where do you point towards or look to to the genesis of the Kennedy plot?
1: I would guess that, well, there were military people that were unhappy. I, I think that it had multiple locations across the power structure of the United States. Military people were unhappy. Ola Tenander, who I mentioned earlier, he actually sent me a, a document that someone had sent him from the West German intelligence archives saying that Otto Skorzeny was, was, was visited by a high-ranking U.S. Air Force general talking about how bad Kennedy was and how he was giving everything away to the East, Right. So the people like LeMay in the military, uh, the military brass were uh, people like Lemnitzer, most likely. Chiefs type people. Yeah. All of these people would have said this. I mean, this alarmed Kennedy enough that he wanted to make a a movie version of Seven Days in May with a military coup to warn people about how the military was basically treasonous. Then you have like uh, uh, people like David Rockefeller and you can read. Uh, articles and letters that he sent into, uh, I think it was Fortune magazine, where he and Kennedy have this little debate over the proper role of the economy. But Kennedy uh, made those people unhappy uh, with his with his policies and his acceptance of third world nationalism and so on. Uh, the CIA people with Cuba, especially, would have considered Kennedy to have betrayed them and national security. So I, I I think that the people that really had the the power that, that really were able to give it a green light were. Outside and above the government, probably figures like Alan Dulles and Dean Acheson. You know, Alan Dulles more in the management of it and Dean Acheson and David Rockefeller more as like the actual emissaries of the American overworld. I would guess that that's where once they gave it the green light, then it was going to go forward. And then on the
2: ground level, you know, the mechanical aspects of it, that's an army intelligence or CIA type people like E. Howard Hunt talked about saying I was a bench warmer in the big event before he died.
1: Yeah, CIA assets and military assets, I think that we're not going to be privy to who was responsible. Ironically, as much as it seems like the CIA and Alan Dulles get the most of the blame, which is understandable, in terms of the actual agencies of the government, I believe it's more likely that the the Joint Chiefs, which was led by Max Taylor, who was supposedly a Kennedy friend, but I've kind of come to believe that Peter Dal Scott and John Newman are correct and that he had betrayed the Kennedys. Uh, so the Joint Chiefs may have actually been on board with the, with that, and, and other you know the military brass, and you also know that the autopsy gets carried out under military auspices at Bethesda, so that's very suspicious. Additionally, the Secret Service was headed by uh, this guy O. Charles Dillon, who is a super blue blood elite. He, uh, Dillon Reed, the, is a Wall Street, a storied Wall Street uh, investment bank. And James Forrestal, the first defense secretary who first proposed like a CIA, was from Dylan Reed, as was Ferdinand Everstott, another Dylan Reed attorney. And they wanted the, to create the CIA. Uh, and so this Dylan guy, who's the head of the, of the Treasury, which runs the Secret Service, he also had been a person, and Kennedy didn't know this, but he was a person who argued for the assassination of Lumumba under Eisenhower. So he's connected to these r- rapacious oligarchic uh corporate financial elites of the United States. So I would guess, and he was conveniently out of town on vacation during the assassination and the secret service destroyed a lot of its records. You know what happened to Abraham Bolden? So I'd say that the the secret service uh, and the, and the joint chiefs may have had more to do than, just, I don't think because I don't think McCone was actually in on it. and He was the head of the CIA. Now, Helms is different. Probably right. Richard Helms, RFK the highest ranking person at the CIA. And RFK called McCone the
2: day of, right, and said, did your guys do this?
1: Yeah, he he called McCone and said, there's a few things that he called, and that was people that he called, including some Cubans. And to one of them, he said, You're, did your guys do this? Or, and I think maybe to McCone's secretary or someone, he says, is, are you responsible for this monstrosity? Um, and so he, yeah, he, he, but he did call McCone and he had suspicions right away that it was CIA and yeah. the CIA told him early on McCone said, yeah, our sources say that there were multiple shooters, uh, and so on. So RFK was told that right away from some of the earliest analysis.
2: And what about Poppy Bush? Does he factor in at all? Or is he just someone who may have been on the know a little bit? I mean, I don't think as far as planning it or anything like that, but definitely this guy was a lifetime knock, non-official CIA uh, asset with his oil companies and tre- uh, Dresser Industries and all that Zapata,
1: yeah, yeah, Zapata Oil and all that. I don't think that he there wouldn't have been much reason for him to get involved in the hands on a hands on way, but the way that he kind of dissembled about his whereabouts on that day, yeah. Um, yeah, and the way that he seemed to construct an alibi for himself, was very, was very, very <laughs> strange. Oh yeah, <laughs> that and that was... that document that like I think it was Joseph McBride found McBride McBride in the stuck that up in the eighties, yeah, eighties. That had to have been him. So Hoover calls him George Bush to the CIA because he had relations with those Cubans and such. I mean, Zapata oil for Zapata is a place in Cuba. So, uh, and you know, under Iran Contra, uh, Bush was very close to Felix Rodriguez, you know, one of those famous crazy fascist uh, right wing Cubans. Yeah. I think that he may have like realized that he knew people that were involved in this without necessarily being a part of it, I think that he wouldn't, you know, because he was such a just a boy, it would be like, you'd farm that out before you'd have a him. Yeah, there'd be a few th- layers away from Poppy Bush,
2: yeah, because yeah, that's a meme that's out there, and I don't really, I'm not sold that that's a picture of him in Dilly Plaza either. No,
1: I don't think it is at all. It's a
2: blurry photo that could have been anybody. Yeah, You know, certainly H.W. Bush. I mean, we asked, it's funny, we asked Andy Card, W. Bush's chief of staff, who was actually our neighbor here in New Hampshire for a few years, which is wild. And he was the president of my alma mater, Franklin Pierce University. So we actually became friendly with him and and buddies with him, and we had him over to our house to do a podcast. And Mike just like point blank asked him, he's like, H.W. Bush, he's CIA, right? He was like, oh, no,
1: no, he not CIA.
0: (laughs) Not before he became director. I was like, okay, and they named the building after him. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but I mean, Card wouldn't have any knowledge of that, and wouldn't you know what I mean? He, he's an yeah. interesting character. I believe that he's related to this woman who became something of a nine eleven whistleblower, and she seems a little, oh, a little strange. But her name's Susan Lindauer, and I think she's related to Andy Card. You should have uh, asked him about her because I heard about all
2: this after I talked to him. Yeah.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But so I, mean, I don't, but that's funny that you guys spoke to him. But I wouldn't, I, 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 couldn't have imagined he would say anything like, "Oh yeah, he of course he was CIA." Yeah.
0: yeah, he was trying to raise money for the school. And we're like, "Why don't you call up the uh, the Carlisle Group?" He's like, "I did." <laughs> call up <laughs> your friends at, Car, at the Carlisle Group. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, he was very genial and friendly, and uh, we went out to dinner with him. Um, and uh, I last ran into him at the grocery store here in the town that I live in, probably about a year year, year and a half ago. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, but he's got, you know, he's got his script for nine 11 and it doesn't, doesn't deviate. I had some questions for him about, um, Angel is next and about the, uh, um, purported assassination attempt down in Florida. Um, uh, those.
1: Yeah. That's uh, a weird story.
0: Yeah. Cause it kind of mirrors what happened in Afghanistan, um, with that general being killed, you know, less than a week before nine 11, who was a pro it
1: Was uh, days before days. Yeah. Before.
0: He was an anti, um, you know, uh, I'm
1: trying to remember what his name was. So I can't Ahmad Shah Massoud. I, I think that Massoud. we we actually, we wrote, I think, what was the best article. Peter Del Scott and I, uh, Peter, I Peter did most of the legwork, but I put it together and, and added a little bit to it. But it's on, uh, the, the Massoud assassination was on September 9th. And on September 4th, uh, you had a meeting in about sending, tr- about more, a bigger military plan against Afghanistan. Okay, on September 4th, 2001 and then september 9th he gets assassinated by al-qaeda people the original order for that assassination came from the u.s facility uh, where they were uh, Incarcerating the blind sheikh abdel rahman a person from the world trade center bombing of 1993 and a al-qaeda Asset who had been used in bosnia and given asset or given visas by the cia And who, had, who was under serious surveillance so the u.s. Basically had to have known that that order was being sent to assassinate Masoud. Massoud was the main roadblock to the US invasion because he was dead set against US troops on the ground. But he gets killed on September 9th, right after they have a meeting about, in the National Security Council, about a military and political plan for Afghanistan. Then on September 10th, they have another meeting to revisit this uh, presidential plan for Afghanistan. And uh, then, with the out of the way, they can actually do whatever they wanted, but they don't really have a good reason to go into Afghanistan on September 10th, but they can do it because Masood is dead. And then on September 11th, of course we know what happens. So it's, yeah. a, it's a wild story.
0: That really got overshadowed obviously by the events of nine 11, but I, I really do think that's an important piece of that puzzle. Um, so I caught a little bit of a stream you did last weekend with uh, John Kiriakou and, you were kind of saying how at one point you were an a- actually a Obama campaign staffer. So how do you go from uh, being an Obama campaign staffer to, to doing what you're doing now? Um, you know, what was the what was the genesis? Well, of-
1: I was more to the left, uh, in ter- especially in terms of foreign policy, compared to anybody that I ever encountered on the Obama campaign. And I had read books like All the Shaw's Men and Overthrow.
0: Oh, Kinzer, yeah, um, me too. And I Big and Kinzer I
1: had thing. and I had some idea about the Kennedy assassination as well from having seen Oliver Stone's movie a, a couple times when I was a kid. I saw it in the theater and then I saw it on VHS as well, and I was really kind of preoccupied with it. So I had a a grim view of like the CIA and U.S. foreign policy, but I actually thought Obama would come in and then he would prosecute Bush and Cheney for torture and for the illegal war in Iraq. But when he didn't do those things. That was disturbing to me. And it also, uh, when he had, there was the coup in Honduras, very early in Obama's presidency, where I thought, this is obviously a U.S. thing. This is like, nothing has really changed. This guy's just like Bush or just like anybody else. And then the Libyan war was even worse because this was like, it, it was just the same playbook. It was this leader in a third world country who was using resource wealth to uplift his own population. And that's the cardinal sin uh, for the US. And, and so they get rid of him and they're just gonna lie about what they're doing and they're gonna wreck this country. And I just thought, I, I cannot believe that uh, this—that Obama, who I worked for is being so overtly gangsterish. So I saw um, maybe in 09 or 2010, I think it was 09. I saw Oliver Stone go on Bill Maher and he was talking about JFK and the unspeakable. And so I ordered the book and I read it really quickly. Yeah. And, uh, I also realized that I had already ordered David Talbot's book brothers, but I hadn't read it for, for whatever reason it got, I ordered it and then kind of forgot about it. It's a great so book. I went and read that shortly afterwards and I thought this is better. I, I probably should have read them in the other order. I should have read brothers first because it's a little more accessible, but I, I read yeah. Jeff Candy unspeakable first. But, um, so I read that and then I, I realized that, um, that I didn't really want to try to work in politics anymore because it's so dirty. And I thought like, what can you do? I want to maybe try to work in uh, as a historian or a social scientist. And I found online searching these things up. I I found a a scholar professor at Florida state named Lance Dehaven Smith, who was writing about state crimes against democracy. Uh, and he had been a formerly, you know, mainstream scholar of public administration. I mean, he was best friends with Ruben Askew, the former governor of Florida, who's a really famous populi- politician back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, I called up Lance on the phone just out of the blue, and I started talking to him. And uh, he said, um, wow, you know, I'm like the guy in academia who studies these things, and you know this stuff as, as well as as well as me. Um, and so we just started exchanging all these emails. Um, and uh, I, he invited me to these conferences at him with these other academics, these academic public administration conferences, um, which was really cool. He and I, This was a, something I was... And I applied to go to grad school at Temple, get into the PhD program at Temple University. So while I was there, I was like appearing with these other uh, authors or these other academics at conferences, you know, and working with them. And it was just uh, a, a, look, a way to provide a kind of radical critique of what we had surmised was a, a poorly understood uh, criminal element that was acting uh, in the American state to derail democracy repeatedly, and that you needed to look at these assassinations and other crimes, not as one-offs, but really try to look at them systematically. And so Lance was, was attempting to do that. Peter Dell Scott had done similar work as kind of a lone voice as an English professor, Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, going back all the way to the 70s. So these guys were people that I looked to. And I got to work with Lance and become very good friends with Lance and his colleagues, which was amazing. He's got in poor health now, so he's kind of uh really retired and gone into seclusion. But uh then I but I've also worked with Peter Dell Scott, which has really been a great honor, and uh wrote articles with him, which was really cool because I had listened to him for like hours. Uh, before I'd even talk, spoken to him, i listened to everything he'd done on YouTube and read his books. And then we start, then I contact him and we start working together and uh, writing articles together. Now we're doing this oral history series. So it's, uh, I mean, I lost my teaching job, um, you know, for, I, I think, ultimately, I'm probably too radical and, and, and so on, which is fine. Uh, and now I run this podcast and I'm getting ready to launch the website same name, AmericanException.com, and the book is coming out. We're going to publish uh, some articles. I think my 2015 article is going to be the first. I got put into a journal dealing with the deep state and the exception, the American exception to the rule of law. It's kind of institutionalized, right? Uh, that's We're going to publish that sort of stuff. And the podcast is going well. Um, it's been... Uh, heartening because i was like what well, i don't know that this is going to be viable there's a bazillion podcasts out there Can right. I get anybody to subscribe but i was lucky uh despite bungling it initially because i was with covert action and that, that didn't quite work out they didn't want they wanted me to i was basically doing the whole podcast but i wasn't going to have control over it and so mm-hmm. if it got successful enough i would have to be like giving money to to people uh that weren't doing anything for it at all but the shitty thing about that was that i had was able to go on uh chapo on the day of uh on november 22nd with oliver stone oh, went no. on there to we went on there together and i got a bunch of subscribers right off the bat but then it all kind of went to, to shit because i had to leave covert action because i realized it was a terrible deal they couldn't pay me and they wouldn't give me the podcast either so i had to leave uh and set up my own and, and but i've i'm past where i was then and it's uh you know it's Things are going okay, and uh, it's like, and I think it's gonna get. I think it's gonna continue to improve because a lot. you never run out of stuff to talk about if you're talking about the crimes yeah. of U.S. Empire.
2: Fortunately, it's a long list. That's and encouraging, Aaron. That's yeah, really I, encouraging I to hear that, that, man. Patreon before this, and yeah, great job there, man. I put the link below in this video, in the
1: description to your Patreon, and it looks like that's going pretty well for you. I mean, it's. I was making more money as a teacher, but. It's, it's still early on. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hoping like, okay, I'm going to, this is going to be the way to easy street. It's work that I really want to be able to do. And if I can do it and be okay, the more that we're able to build this up, then the more we can have people working, doing things at the website. I want the website to have articles that are all, I don't want to publish anything that's not i'm not really happy about publishing so it's not a it's not a matter of like we got to get some articles out this week and this week it's going to be whatever we put up is going to be something that i feel really good about we're going to do re uh new versions of the articles that we did at covert action we'll probably the 9 11 trilogy with peter del scott and ben howard and me and the article on the masood assassination uh Pepe Escobar actually cited that article in his his article on the Masood assassination because he was the last guy to see Masood alive. So one of the episodes on the podcast that I have is with Peter Del Scott, Pepe Escobar, and John Kiriakou talking about the Masood assassination. It was like the number two episode. And so wow. we've just been, been able to put, put those things together. It's been really, really, really cool. I'm so thankful to the people that have helped me to put the podcast together and the interview subjects because I've been able to get a lot of people that I wanted to, to talk to to come on, and Ben Howard has been awesome. He's a really uh, brilliant guy and very smooth op- operator on the podcast. He's got a, a good uh, radio, you know, sensibility. So it's been it's a lot of fun, but I kind of have no life, uh, just working on this stuff all the time. But yeah. it's all right. Uh, it's it's that's I can live with that because I'm I feel happy about what I'm doing. But you're
2: passionate about it, and, and you're doing a great thing. Yeah, I got to hang out um, in March with John Kerryaku and Roger Waters. at the national press club and uh, i got to witness a really cool moment where john met roger waters for the first time and uh had me take a picture of them together and roger was incredibly supportive and helpful to john ahead of him going to prison for his stretch uh there in federal prison and uh he just finally got the chance to thank roger in person for that so that was a really cool this kind of stuff that we do it brings really cool people together and you know obviously we discovered your work and um, you know, I know you've worked with Abby Martin. You work with Oliver Stone, um, Kuznick, uh, you know, all the all the greats. So
0: Eugenio. Yeah. It's
2: encouraging Aaron that there are people our age and, and our age group who are, are doing this and are passionate about it. So, you know, I really tip my hat to you for what you do. And um, it's 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 been it's been awesome. Uh, you know, hearing your story and and, and what you're doing and definitely uh, see it keep going and you're having great success.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. I got the people like Abby and Jim are awesome. Even, you know, and, and Oliver as well. They are people like Oliver would have been better off career wise not to do JFK. <laughs> uh, Abby, uh, you know, Abby is very talented and has a lot of charisma. You no, know, she's not She's not bad looking. She Probably be a lot more successful in terms of money if she was in mainstream media or something else, but she has a good heart and is very, and, and, and does not accept the injustice of the world. So you get, and, and, you know, Jim is a brilliant guy and he just never gives up going after this case. So all these people that are doing these things that don't make sense in terms of just getting ahead in this society, but that feel compelled to like go after uh, the villains that, are, uh, that, that have messed everything up. I, 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 it's always heartening to work with like people that, that, that wanna do that. Uh, and so there's a great sense of camaraderie uh, with these people. John Karaoke is another one, uh, amazing guy.
2: He's awesome. Yeah, we've had him on uh, Jackman Radio twice and he was up in New Hampshire. We actually got, he came in studio with us and we had dinner with him before and that was just so cool to hang with him and, and do that. And then seeing him at the press club. Um, So, yeah, you know, and and a lot of people want to speak out about this stuff or they're just scared of, you know, saying they know about it or, or not. But to me, it's like, just do it. Just get in front of a mic and do it, because if you're over the target or you're right on the money about it and you are actually doing something that's noble and just,
1: in the end, it will work out. I hope so. you you have you have to hope so and for other people you know if you're going to do it on a part if you're on a part-time basis you can find some outfit maybe that, that that needs help you know you can work on a volunteer basis there's other you know there's ways that you can try to contribute to these to these efforts and I think as it's depressing on the one hand or it's disturbing but the fact that they are overtly ha- clamping down with like the PayPal sanctions regime for like consortium news and the ministry of truth thing to to me it shows that like they understand that like they're vulnerable on people that are telling the truth and so they need to like you know ramp up their propaganda efforts and try to find it make it impossible for people to function financially if they're going to put out this kind of work because this is actually the true i mean the truest version of I, i don't think that this is good in and of itself that it, But it actually is like the market working in a way when, when people are able to sustain themselves by selling things to readers because these other outlets like the Times, I think they get the money from who knows who and people advertise with them, but they don't even necessarily advertise because it's financially smart. It's because they want to put money to supporting these establishment organizations. Whereas like people that are out there trying to wrap up, a, you know, get a subscriber base, is a more honest uh, way to, to make it if you can. So, of course, they're going to try to crush that. That's right. a little worrisome. But I kind of think that, like, you know, I don't think Patreon is going to go after, like, Truanon because that, that makes them so much money. So they're in a – and, you know, Chapo is not quite as out there as Truanon, but they're still also pretty anti-establishment. So that there's there's a window here uh, for, because there's some – you know, there's there's a demand for it, and so maybe, you know – Maybe things will work out. Maybe they're not going. If they crush things too much, it's like the U.S. with Russia. Then they're going to allow for the rise of other platforms besides the monopolies. So they're kind of screwed, I think, in some ways. uh, But we'll see how it how it plays out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're over an hour now, Aaron. Uh, I know we we, we're at about an hour fifteen. So we're very appreciative of your time and and keep doing the awesome work that you're doing. And um, where where can people support you before we head out here?
1: The easiest, the best way is to subscribe to the podcast at Patreon. And the podcast is American Exception. Uh, The book is coming out on January 21st. So if you do like to read books, then it's got a lot of uh, interesting information that I learned uh, in in terms over the course of, you know, over 10 years. And there's going to be an audiobook version, too. Uh, People can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, It's at Aaron underscore good underscore. Um, and yeah, the, the podcast is the main thing that I'm really focusing a lot of energy on. So it's a great way to, to, uh, get more of this information and see all these guests that we can come up with. Uh, It's a lot of, it's a lot of fun.
0: Very good. Well, thanks again, everybody for joining us and we hope everyone has a great weekend.
2: And be, be sure to subscribe to all Aaron's stuff and follow him on Twitter. And, uh, please, if you haven't subscribed to this channel, Jackman radio, click that subscribe button. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jackman Radio, and we are on Patreon as well, patreon.com slash Jackman Radio. All right, signing off. Thank you very much, everybody. All right.